Welcome to the final episode of Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 US election, and I suppose the first two months of the Biden administration. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. Hello, dear listeners. Um, I bet you were wondering where I got to. I had promised you all that I would be doing an episode um, around the inauguration, but I was unable to do so. And I should probably explain to you what exactly happened. Um, the day before Joe Biden was inaugurated, um, when I was planning and looking forward to doing my inauguration episode of this podcast, um, I started experiencing quite a lot of severe pain. Um, in fact, I had pain most of that week um, and wound up being admitted to the hospital um, where I stayed for just over a week. Uh, what I was suffering from was pancreatitis. Um, it was a severe infection of the pancreas caused by gallstones, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, they wound up operating on me and taking out my gallbladder um, because the infection did not uh, go away. And they were a bit concerned. <laughs> Apparently, I'm told after the fact that I was very ill. Um, I wasn't feeling great, so I'm not that surprised by that. Um, so that all went fine. Uh, and then I was checked out of the hospital and returned home. But 24 hours later, um, received notification that I had managed to catch COVID in hospital. So I then did have a case of COVID that was um, certainly nowhere near as bad as others, but um, coincided with my surgical recovery as well. So it just kind of the whole thing knocked me for six for a little while. So um, I've been suffering from uh, all that, uh, plus a lot of fatigue from my recovery, um, and then the need to catch up on all of the other areas of my life, my day job, my family that I hadn't been able to sort out uh, while I was busy being ill. Um, and so the podcast unfortunately went to the bottom of my to-do list for a little while. Um, but I want you all to know I am feeling much, much better now. And I have missed doing this. Um, so I did want to make sure that I, I had this final um, final episode of Democratically 2020 in its current form. Um, I have always planned that this podcast would end uh, on Inauguration Day um, or around the inauguration. So I'm still bringing this podcast to an end in its current form. But I don't think I'm done with podcasting because I have really enjoyed it. I just need to think about what my next steps are. So fear not, if I do something else, I will make sure that um, I push whatever my next project is into this feed so that you could find it. Uh, in the meantime, I just want to thank you. And um, I hope you will enjoy this conversation, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. Um, the conversation I'm about to share with you uh, starts off um, me talking to Marcella Mulholland, um, who was a Bernie Sanders supporting progressive activist with the Sunrise Foundation and is now the political director of Data for Progress. Um, and then in the second half of the conversation, I talked to Marshall Manson, a um, moderate Republican, or at least a former moderate Republican um, strategist uh, and campaigner who has now left the Republican fold. I thought it was fascinating to talk to both of them because these are two people who um, are both lovely humans who um, come from very different parts of the political spectrum and yet came together in this election to vote for Joe Biden. So I was really interested to ask both of them how they were feeling about the Biden administration. And as you will hear, um, I think there's a lot of agreement. So 
So I am joined by Marcella Mulholland, who the last time I spoke to her was Deputy uh, Director of Climate for Data for Progress, and who now has the title of Political Director for Data for Progress. So that's impressive. Hello, hello, Marcella. <laughs> Hi, Karen. It's so nice to be back with you. It's been an exciting last few months. It certainly has in all sorts of ways. Um, but I guess that's that's the matter sort of go straight into it. Um, it's it's just a little over two months in the into the Biden administration. It feels like a very different world. Um, mm. I know that you were, you know, like like I, not a supporter of Joe Biden um, during the primary. Um, you were a big fan of Senator Bernie Sanders. And I know that, you know, the Sunrise Movement, which you've done a lot of work with, um, has been, you know, pushing and encouraging um, a movement in, in certain directions. I'm curious how you feel about the first couple of months of the administration. Yeah, well, I mean, so last time we spoke, I'm, I think it was November. Um, so we had a different president then. The landscape was quite different. Um, and since then, I think the, the biggest accomplishment for the Biden presidency, hands down, has been passing the American Rescue Plan. Um, and there's really no question that that um, package really brings us closer to both rebuilding our country and economy post-pandemic and just getting us out of kind of the grips of COVID that we've been in now for over a year. Um, and as a progressive, I mean, there were obviously disappointments in the ARP legislative fight. Um, top line, obviously, is, is the failure of, of including um, $15 minimum wage increase in the bill that was struck down by the parliamentarian, and then also several Democrats voted against it. Um, but overall, I mean, the bill, you know, advanced so many progressive goals. I think expanding the child tax credit um, will lift millions of children out of poverty, um, having direct cash payments going to Americans when the past year has been so difficult for so many working families is really uh, a critical part of this. And I think politically speaking, it's really exciting to see the Biden administration um, start out their um, tenure with such a popular package. So data for progress um, polling shows that the ARP is one of the most popular pieces of major legislation in recent memory with um, having majority support amongst Democrats, Republicans and independents. So um, we've seen the White House kind of say, like, though it might not have been bipartisan in the Senate, it is bipartisan among voters. Um, and really the political possibilities with an administration that's um, leaning into policies that have broad based support amongst the American public is really exciting. Um, as a progressive now, I'm, I'm looking toward the infrastructure bill. Um, obviously, that's going to be huge for climate concerns and job creation. Um, so, I mean, we started off on a strong foot and the, the fight continues onwards. Are you surprised that the Biden administration has been so aggressive in pushing forward progressive legislation that's that's so broad and impactful? I mean, it's quite a different story to the start of Joe Biden's last time in the White House um, in 2000, 2009, when he and Obama put forward also a, a, a reasonably ambitious um, plan, but wasn't nearly to the scale um, of what the American Rescue Act uh, plan has done to, to really tackle things first on firsthand. What do you think has changed between then and now? I mean, so much has changed. It's really, to your point, kind of surreal to see Biden, who is in many ways a, a relic of kind of the establishment um, wing of the Democratic Party, really be so influenced and, and have his policy priorities and even rhetoric so shaped by 
um, the progressive movement and also just how um, the Democratic Party landscape has changed over the last several years. Um, and while Biden, you know, certainly wasn't my top choice, I think it really isn't about him as an individual. It's about um, the movement that we've built and the political landscape that progressives have changed. And, you know, there's countless young people, activists and advocates that spent the last several years preparing for and creating this moment where you have someone like Joe Biden from the beginning saying like deficit spending is not the top priority. We need a big and bold package um, that delivers immediate relief to working families from the get go the top line numbers for both the ARP and now looking toward the infrastructure bill are already in the trillions. Whereas you had in the Obama era, um, a really hesitation across the board from folks in the White House and the president himself to go that big, that fast. Um, and that's just not the case anymore. And I think that speaks to the fact that um, the crises we find ourselves in are, are, are clearer than ever. And then also the, the political appetite um, for bigger, bolder solutions that meet the scale of those crises has, has certainly transformed and expanded over the last several years. I mean, you gave credit to the progressive movement um, in pushing forward this change, and I, I'm not going to take anything away from from all the activists um, who move forward on things like the fight for fifteen uh, $15 mm -hmm. minimum wage and so forth, which is, um, you know, started out as kind of fantasy land and now is is really um, have a very realistic chance of getting passed. But I guess I guess I would also say it seems to me that a lot of the credit for Democrats feeling a lot bolder goes to Republicans as well, because <laughs> a decade or more of obstruction from the Republicans has, I think, eliminated the argument that many Democrats used to have that it's important to work in a bipartisan way. Um, it feels to me that the the promise of bipartisanship um, at the legislative level is has been proven to be false so often now that there's almost nowhere else for Democrats to go except to to work together well with our own with our own uh, mm -hmm. coalition and make sure that we get across our own priorities. Totally. I think um, we may have talked this about this before another time I was on the pod, but um, I heard someone say once that really um, the people who were most radicalized by Republican obstructionism was maybe moderate Senate Democrats who over the last several years and especially during the Obama administration just saw how obstructionist Mitch McConnell and Republican senators were willing to be. And really it, history makes clear that kind of this um, idyllic like longing that you kind of hear from President Biden and other like mansion and cinema of like bipartisan cooperation is really of an era long gone. Um, and while there may be some Republicans who, um, you know, might give some indication of, of wanting to be on board with some sort of infrastructure bill, I really, um, at least from my perspective, uh, the lesson from the Obama years largely was that there is no good faith negotiating with Republicans. Um, and I think, I mean, pres I was listening this morning to some updates on the infrastructure bill and apparently they're saying they wanna break it up in into different packages and maybe try to start with one that can get 60 votes in the Senate. And I just don't really feel that that's a viable path forward. Um, and, and that's why we've been doing some work um, talking about the filibuster and to your point, like the appetite amongst the Democratic caucus for some sort of filibuster reform has dramatically expanded since the last time we had a Democratic president. And I think that speaks to what you're saying, where the Republican obstructionism of the last several years has just re really made things untenable in the Senate. <laughs> 
So a lot of Americans, in fact, almost every American who's sane and sensible and has a life does not understand <laughs> the ways in which obscure Senate procedures uh, prevent politicians from achieving any of the things that they promise to do. Um, significant legislative achievement is basically impossible for both parties right now, um, except when it's restricted to issues relating to the budget, which makes it very easy, for example, to cut taxes, but very mm -hmm. hard, for example, to build roads. Um, mm -hmm. And that seems to me, you know, just fundamentally a huge problem. Um, I, I am dreading um, spending the next six months or so um, reading an article in the New York Times every week or so about what Joe Manchin thinks about the filibuster. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious if there's any way that you can see that we can just get over this whole argument and move on. Yeah, well, so I something that uh, data for progress polling makes clear regarding the filibuster, to your point of like most voters don't think about the filibuster every day. Um, I wish I had that kind of peace of mind, but <laughs> nice. um, I know. But so, yeah, it's an arcane Senate rule that most people don't know about and don't care about. But what we find in our polling is that if you frame filibuster reform, not as an end in and of itself, but rather as a tactic to pass other popular legislation that voters support, that is far and away the most popular way to frame it. So if you say, like, do you support changing Senate rules and procedures in order to pass an increase in the minimum wage, in order to pass like a robust infrastructure bill that addresses climate change and creates millions of jobs, then you get voter support and, and voters to pay attention to that. And it makes sense, you know, like um, the filibuster um, really is just a barrier to these other pieces of legislation that we need to pass for the American people. Um, and to your point, I think the Republicans really have it easy here because they don't really have a positive uh, vision or agenda for the country beyond just tax cuts and pushing through judicial nominations, which they can do already, either through budget reconciliation or just a, a 51 vote majority. So Democrats that actually are trying to um, address climate change are trying to expand voting rights are trying to um, implement gun safety measures. We just had a shooting yesterday, like all of these urgent issues that um, immigration reform, passing the DREAM Act, like Democrats have all of these priorities that actually require um, it, within the status quo rules right now, a 60 vote majority. So I think um, really Democrats are, are facing a test right now of um, it's unclear when else we'll have a Democratic trifecta in the next several years. So really making the most of it now and doing what we need to do to, to deliver on the platform that we commit to voters when, when it's election season. 100%. Um, I want to ask you about, uh, short of eliminating the filibuster altogether, um, what are the options in terms of, I mean, Joe Manchin and, you know, Kirsten Sinema, these are the, the Democratic uh, senators who we would need to get on board if we were going to make this kind of change, because we would still need a 51 vote majority mm -hmm. to overturn the Senate rules. Right. Um, and Joe Manchin has been back and forth about talking about possibly kind of going back to when people had to stand up and talk. Um, and it really brings home to me how far we've moved in terms of uh, what a filibuster even means. And I think mm -hmm. it's, you know, people have gradually, gradually the filibuster has gone from a rule by which the minority could block some legislation if they worked very hard to one where the minority can routinely block all legislation unless the other side works very hard. Um, mm -hmm. I wonder if you would be 
uh, if you see a prospect for Democrats changing the rules in such a way that at least without scrapping the filibuster altogether, we can make it create a simpler process for us to get legislation through. Yeah, so there's talk now of, of going back to a talking filibuster, and we've seen Manchin and some other senators um, express some interest in that. I think uh, Biden last week also kind of indicated some openness to filibuster reform that, that came short of full um, fully getting rid of it and, and had um, other, like you're saying, it made it difficult for the minority to fully black, block legislation, but required more effort on their part. And it's kind of wild that now the minority or Republicans can just kind of block legislation completely without even having to explain why or or do anything. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I think, I think the left right now really um, should toe the line and, and kind of emphasize the, the moral clarity here of like the filibuster has been used to block the advancement of civil rights. It's a Jim Crow relic and it's really blocking progress on all of these issues that matter to voters and to the American people and um, kind of holding that side of the conversation, I think is the role of progressives right now. And if um, there's some compromise in the future on some sort of talking filibuster um, that does allow for more legislative movement and gets us out of this standstill where Mitch McConnell has a minority where Republicans have lost the popular vote um, in the Senate and the presidency for several years and still get to block progress in legislation. I mean, if we're able to reform the filibuster in a way that changes those dynamics, I certainly would uh, support that. So speaking of um, moves to block and obstruct, um, another piece of legislation that we haven't talked about yet, um, which would do also a great deal to get American democracy functioning again in a useful way, is the For the People Act. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, John Lewis, um, the great civil rights leader who who sadly died last year, um, was a big advocate for. And it is a whole package of reforms to our basically democratic infrastructure um, mm-hmm. at a federal level to encourage states to make voting easier, um, take steps towards statehood for DC and Puerto Rico so that maybe I, someday I could actually vote for a senator, which would be nice. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that piece of legislation and what do you think are its prospects? Yeah, I mean, I think this is kind of a moment where the filibuster conversation is um, facing a test. Like, obviously, Democrats are facing so many structural disadvantages in the Electoral College and the composition of the Senate. Um, and now also with Republican state legislatures gerrymandering districts so that Democrats are further disempowered in the House. Um, So I think it's never been more clear the urgency for a bill like the For the People Act. Um, especially coming off the heels of a presidential election where far too many Republicans uh, seemed very comfortable supporting a president's clearly um, anti-democratic goals. Um, So I definitely support the For the People Act. I think um, Democrats really are facing this moment now where, like I said, it's unclear when we will have a trifecta again. And now is really our chance to push forward democracy reforms that it's not necessarily about benefiting Democrats, but rather it's about making the electoral process fair and further democratizing um, the way that uh, legislatures are representative of voters. And our polling also finds that it's a really popular piece of legislation. So I think Democrats um, are set up for success if they really choose to commit to um, passing the For the People Act and making the case for it to the American public. 
You kept saying, and and you're absolutely correct, that your polling and other polling that I've seen says that that the For the People Act and also other democratic priorities um, and pieces of legislation are very popular. Um, mm -hmm. And that's true. But it's also true that in many cases, popular, popular policy views that are held by Democrats um, can be well liked in a particular state or district, but actually Republicans still win elections there. Um, you know, for example, in Florida, um, in the last election, famously, Donald Trump won the presidential election there. But the same voters passed a uh, an increase of the minimum wage yeah. in that state. So clearly, people are making a disconnection between the politicians that they support and the politics, or the police, the policies that they support. Um, what else can Democrats do to do a better job of helping people align their policy preferences with their voting behavior? Karen, I couldn't agree more. This is such an interesting and, and troubling dynamic. Um, <laughs> Uh, as someone who's from Florida, I was, you know, super disheartened to see Trump increase his vote share in 2020 from 2016. And um, also in Florida, like you said, we saw voters overwhelmingly support increasing the minimum wage. And in 2018, voters in Florida also supported expanding the right to vote to people with um, criminal convictions. So I think the dynamic that we're seeing of actually democratic policies are really popular, but Democrats themselves are not that popular in some places it's not um, <laughs> is really critical that yeah. we address moving forward. And um, with Data for Progress, I, I helped a project that we were working on after the election that kind of was um, prompted by the whole, I, this is like, feels like five years ago, but the Abigail Spanberger, Connor Lamb mm -hmm. ordeal where they were blaming defund the police and progressives for democratic losses in the house. And we went out to kind of look for the best data and evidence that kind of made the case that actually progressive policies are popular in a lot of swing districts and even Republican states. And what we found um, was that things like Medicaid expansion, like things like marijuana legalization, uh, ambitious climate action, increasing the minimum wage, robust COVID relief, like all of these progressive and democratic priorities um, are above water and often, you know, very much above water with voter support. But when you ask people, then do you uh, associate these policies with the Democratic Party? Overwhelmingly, it's not the case. Like we were finding in, in polling world, like anything 70 plus is kind of striking. And in, in these cases, we were getting like um, 80, 90 percent of voters were like, this is not associated with the Democratic Party. I think the, we test this is kind of niche, but like negotiating uh, drug prices for insulin is one of the most popular parts of the Democratic Party platform. Um, and voters had no idea that Democrats stand for that. So I think we're kind of in, facing a, a branding challenge here where voters, um, like I said, support Democratic policies, but don't associate them with Democrats. Um, and I'm not I'm under no impression that like it's just a matter of Democrats talking about those things more. Obviously, polarization is a huge thing. And and if folks have a partisan identity, that's, you know, really difficult to overcome. But I do think having message disciplining and uh, message discipline and having Democrats really like over and over again, just make clear that they are that we are the party of lowering drug prices, that we are the party of stopping climate change and creating jobs. We're the party of workers and increasing wages, um, of legalizing marijuana. Like we need to make very clear to voters that that's what we stand for over any other kind of um, political fights that Republicans are starting to distract people, I think is really key. 
I mean, I agree with you about the clarity around the policies, but I, I would also suggest or at least say out loud the possibility that there is more of a cultural factor than a policy factor at work here in that, um, you know, and I'm not, you know, Democrats are a multi, multi-racial coalition of competing interest groups and very different sort of cultural perspectives. Uh, Republicans are pretty unified around being a particular set of set of set of voters but but i think that somehow or other even though democrats are very much still the party of the working class um, and working people they don't know they don't have that brand perception anymore in the way that um you know perhaps they did in a previous generation so the democratic party has become kind of cultural signaling is democrats are college educated uh, elite voters plus you know plus minority voters and republicans are now branding themselves as much more white working class um and that's that's a tricky dynamic to shake because once a cultural perception is is there, it's really hard to get rid of it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, that's right. I agree with everything you said. I think um, it is a problem that the Democratic leaders in Congress, Schumer and Pelosi, do represent like the liberal coasts of the country mm-hmm. and and kind of really feed into this cultural. Um, distance between more rural Midwestern yeah. America and, you know, these coastal cities. Um, Basically, can the- we just all be Sherrod Brown? <laughs> that would help. <laughs> right. Totally. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think like the Pelosi uh, whole ice cream in the fridge ordeal <laughs> is like a good representation of this. Yeah. Obviously, it's kind of, you know, ridiculous that it made such a big deal out of it. But like, it is representative of like, that is not a lifestyle that is relatable to most people. <laughs> um, and it is a problem that, that that's the leadership that people are, are seeing associated with the Democratic Party. So yeah, I think um, more diversity in, in Democratic leadership and voices is critical. Um, geographic diversity specifically um, is key um, here. And yeah, the cultural differences uh, really, really influence people's voting decisions, I think. And now it's time to play the gut check game. I'll go ahead and kick off with an introduction to our new guest who has just joined us, uh, Marshall Manson, friend of the pod, um, partner at Brunswick Communications and former Republican strategist, activist, campaigner, person. I don't know. How do you want to describe yourself, Marshall? Uh, enjoying a glass of red wine. <laughs> no longer most of those things. Um so I'm really glad to have you both on together for this conversation. And what I thought we'd do is, is kick off, um, Marshall, I've already talked to Marcella um, and got her view on things. Um, I thought we'd kick off with doing the gut check game together um, and get your take on both of your takes together on things. And then Marcella has got to shoot off and we can have a, our half of the conversation. Cool, sounds amazing. Sounds great, can't wait. So for those of you who are not familiar with the gut check game, um, I have in front of me my trusty Red Sox baseball cap into which I have placed things that have been heard and said, um, I used to say around the campaign trail, but you know, just in American political life, I guess, um, over the past you know week or so. Um, I'm gonna pull them out of the hat, read it out, and we'll each have a chance to react to um, the statements. So let me do the first one. Um, excellent. Um, So this is a Bernie Sanders quote. Um, So 
I'll go to Marcella first for a reaction and then, and then Marshall. He says, to my mind, the American Rescue Plan was the single most significant piece of legislation for working class people that has been passed since the 1960s. Um, my gut check is that I agree. The American Rescue Plan um, included robust support for working families that's direly needed in the pandemic and um, was needed before, frankly, and things like expanding the child tax credit and the direct cash payments are bringing relief to people who really need it. So my gut check is that I agree. <laughs> Marshall, how's your gut on that question? Yeah, I'll go with that. I, you know, it's a huge piece of legislation. It's a gigantic amount of money, all much needed. Uh, I think, frankly, unlike the negotiations at the end of the Trump administration, I think some some useful legislation, legislative negotiations happening there to try to get the get and keep the money in the right places. Nobody 100% happy, but uh, an awful lot of good stuff going to happen out of the back of that. And I, I think actually some incredibly clever policy making um, buried in the legislation as well. Now, not so buried, which is a good thing. I think the emphasis on urban areas is probably right, given the, um, the impact of COVID in those areas. Uh, so yeah, all in all, I'm, I'm two thumbs up on this one. Great. Do you have any, do either of you have any concerns or doubts about the, the American Rescue Plan, um, except to the extent that you might think it falls short or there's more? Is there anything you think, eh, I wouldn't have done it that way? Um, I think a big thing I'm waiting to see, and, and the White House has seemed already kind of on point with this, is just making sure that voters know that um, the White House and Biden were kind of the main proponents pushing for this bill. And I think um, in 2009, there was, you know, some issues with the stimulus kind of being done in, in ways that uh, weren't, the benefits of it weren't that clear to yeah. the American people. So I think now it's kind of a a PR thing where you have the vice president and the president going across the country, kind of making the case for and publicizing the effects of the ARP. So um, that's kind of something I'm eyeing that I think will be critical to the political uh, consequences of this bill. So don't be so subtle and modest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Marshall, do you have anything, anything on that? No, I think I, not really, to be honest. I think it was a huge piece of legislation that required a lot of work and a lot of intense effort to get there. Those things are never perfect. They're never going to have everything that everybody wants. Yeah. And that's just fine. That's the way the legislative process is meant to work. So, so there you I, go. I think it's I think it's exactly what it should be. So the American Rescue Plan with more than 70% approval by the American people and 100% approval by the participants in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another one. Um, I'm going to throw you a curveball here. <clears throat> this is section one of the Equal Rights Amendment written in 1923 and ratified la last year by Virginia. Um, recently, the House passed a resolution overruling a deadline that would have prevented it from being ratified. Section one says, equality of rights under the law shall not be de denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Marshall. Your state of Virginia has 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 possibly um, opened a window for this uh, this amendment to become constitutional. What do you reckon? Uh, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> uh, you, you you can't. The, there's a there's an enabling legislation that goes with the amendment. Um, yeah. uh, the legislation's expired. Uh, we can't have we can't have amendments hanging around for fifty or hundred years waiting for votes. So. I'm, I'm very pleased for my uh, friends in the Virginia legislature that they thought this was worth doing. Um, but uh, my gut check on whether this is a, this is the, whatever it is, the 26th <laughs> amendment to the constitution, if I'm counting right, uh, is a big, is a big no. Yeah. 
it's gonna it's gonna fall down on uh on a statute of limitations yeah marcella agree with that um yeah i wasn't really aware of what's happening here so the virginia state legislature is trying to amend the national no they have so the 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 equal rights amendment was uh passed by congress back in the 1970s mm-hmm. uh no, actually 20 sorry 1920 1923 and uh it has not it has not been ratified by enough states but mm-hmm. virginia ratified it last year so they were the last state that tipped it over to where if it had not already expired it could have become it could have become okay constitution uh but as as marshall says there are some tricky hoops to jump through um but hey i mean if we're minded to do it then we can start new (laughs) yeah that's exactly right and that's how the process is supposed to work and if the legislature is up for debating it again i think that'd be interesting and i i I, I, for for a guy who's been a broadly conservative small c conservative for my most of my life um I, I don't think we amend the Constitution enough, actually. I think we should be having more debates about constitutional amendments. I think that they're important. The Constitution is supposed to be a living document, but you know the, the, there are provisions and um, uh, rules for making it so, and we should use them more often. Yeah. I mean, constitu- the difficulty of the constitutional amendment process is yet another part of the ways in which it's very hard to make any kind of progress in uh, American political gridlock. Um, I think you're absolutely right. There's, we have a, we have a dem- democratic infrastructure that was designed for 18th century America. We, we live in 2021. Um, it's, it's well past time that we use the benefit of the last couple hundred years of information about how governments can work to fix our systems. Um, so here's, a, here's one. <laughs> This one did make me chuckle. This is Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, Republican of Arkansas. Oh, um, dear. <laughs> um, this is from the confirmation hearings of um, defense nominee Colin Kale. He says, talking about Colin Kale's tweets, uh, the really tense moments are going to happen when you're in the Pentagon and Iran hijacks another American ship or China shoots down an aircraft. And if this is the way you respond to mere policy disagreements when you're sitting at home reading the news, I do not think that you're fit to sit in the Pentagon and make decisions about life and death. Mean tweets. Um, Tom Cotton has a really big problem with them now that Donald Trump is no longer president. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I think Tom Cotton has views that are uh, really misaligned with the interests and values of, of uh, the United States. So I wouldn't really side with him on this one or anything else to say the least. <laughs> yeah, Tom, Tom Cotton is excellent evidence that there are occasionally idiots in government. <laughs> yes. Agree well. with that. <laughs> There you go. A lot of beautiful agreement on this podcast <laughs> between different political perspectives, but we can all agree Tom Cotton is an idiot. Um, on, <laughs> Done. 100%. It, it gives me an opportunity to point out something that's 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 actually noteworthy about Biden's administration, because he has actually managed to get all of his cabinet level appointees approved by Congress faster than either Trump or Obama was able to get there. So um, whatever he was doing was working. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think partly that helped because he had a very qualified set of people. It was really hard to, uh, to dispute the, the competency of, but uh, um, Marshall, do you have any thoughts on the, uh, the suite of, uh, of nominees that uh, Biden now has in his cabinet? I think they're, I, I genuinely, I think they're excellent. Uh, I think he's done a good job of selecting people who 
uh, are incredibly well qualified, are subject matter experts in their chosen fields and uh, you know areas of responsibility. Um, clearly know their stuff uh, is an absolute polar opposite of where the Trump administration was in terms of appointing uh, appointing people. Um, and actually, I think I think the challenge was always going to be for Biden striking the right balance between getting his own team and picking people who had experience from the Obama administration. And actually, I think he's done a reasonably good job of striking that balance. I don't think anybody will ever agree 100% one way or the other about whether you get that right. But I really, I think, I think if you step back and look at it objectively, I think he's got a good mix of old and new. Um, you know, he's got a good mix of people that he's really comfortable with and people who'll challenge him. I, I, you know, is it the perfect cabinet? We'll find out. But for the moment, he, I think he's made an awful, awful, um, an awful, sorry, an awful lot of really good choices. Marcella, do you have a, a favorite Biden appointee? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'll put you on the spot. Down Deb Holland for oh. Secretary of Interior. Yeah, she is pretty awesome. And it's actually particularly meaningful, of course, to have a Native American woman in that specific post, given the very fraught history between the Department of Interior and, and, and the tribes and the reservations. Um, totally. So absolutely a brilliant thing to do and it is striking to me how hard a time she got actually um she was she was given um there was lots of kind of threats against her by the republicans um which seemed to be grounded in very little um so yeah i was glad to see her go through me too um I've got I've got two more quotes I want to I want to do this was this one is uh, from Sidney Powell, uh, the lawyer, um, Trump aligned lawyer who was bringing a whole series of frivolous frivolous lawsuits um, and uh, basically just acting like a general whack job. She's being sued by Dominion Voting Systems, a company that she um, falsely claimed was uh, using their, was allowing their machines to overturn the results of the 2020 election, supposedly in conjunction with, I'm a little unclear, either Venezuela or China or both. I don't know. But in her, in her uh, rebuttal to the uh, accusation that she's libeled them by making this false claims, her lawyers have written that, quote, no reasonable person would conclude that the statements were truly statements of fact. I mean, I don't even know where to begin with that. It, it, <laughs> it's just, I, 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 I there, there is a need. If you look at the the, the legal um, practice around all the the challenges to the election, there is a need for state bar associations to be more assertive in uh, attacking the rights of lawyers to practice who have clearly behaved unethically. And I would put whoever wrote that idiotic brief uh, squarely in the crosshairs for that. It's it's absolutely against um, the code of legal, legal ethics in every single state to actively mislead the court. Um, and the idea that that statement is anything other than misleading, although it was the best misleading, uh, you know, it's insane. And that lawyers can't be allowed to get away with that. Setting crazy Sidney Powell aside, lawyers can't get be, be allowed to get away with that sort of stuff because it threatens the, the fabric of the justice system. And I'm sorry to make a, a boring point about a funny quote, but actually it's just, that really does wind me up that one. Yeah, it's, it's not good. <laughs> no, it's uh Marcella, I don't know about you, but I have found the last two months my horrifying health complications aside 
strangely relaxing in my ability to not care too much about whatever Sidney Powell or Donald Trump or Rudy Giuliani are doing. Um, oh, it's been so peaceful since he's not on Twitter. And I didn't even follow him before, but um, now it seems like he just Trump is, is I barely think about him, I got to say. 100%. But I see now that he makes statements that then will be posted to Twitter and the statements are also really something to behold but um yeah the peace and quiet we've gotten post-trump being twitter and being out of office has been really nice (laughs) it's been lovely and uh i never cared about sydney powell before i don't plan to ever care about her again so i'm happy to relegate her to the status of z-list non-celebrity who i can just laugh at and pay no attention to um one final quote before uh, I let you go, Marcella, and, and Marshall, then you, we and I can have our chat. Um, this is a, a quote from Biden, um, who in his speech about the plan to um, uh, slowly um, unlock the country from the, the, the COVID crisis, he says, after this long, hard year that will, make, that will make this Independence Day something truly special, where we not only mark our independence as a nation, but we begin to, begin to mark our independence from this virus. I mean, I gotta say, whoever in the White House came up with the idea of framing the end of the pandemic with Independence Day was doing great at their job I mean giving uh people something to look forward to and finally having a date uh to kind of keep our eyes on is is, feels so nice after kind of the unending pandemic we've been having um so I think it's great messaging um you know I haven't been a huge fan of Independence Day before but uh you know I think it's really uh good for kind of both political and comms purposes and it's great to have an end in sight so I mean, am I the only one who literally had the reaction that this was Bill Pullman's quote from? Well, uh, I was just about to say it's a little, it's a little Bill <laughs> little Pullman. Little on the nose. But oh, it's a, really? It's, it's a nice, it's a nice bit of uh, of spe- of writing. It's a nice bit of rhetoric. Uh, it's a nice, as you say, Marcella. It's a nice metaphor. I couldn't agree with more than that. It's a little Bill Pullman. Just a little. It's, it's bang on Bill Pullman. Marcella <laughs> might be too young to have seen Independence Day when it came out. Yeah, I don't. I'm like, who is this? The original one, not the rubbish okay. sequel that came out two years ago. Yeah, well, I so, can't wait for Fourth of July, you guys. Basically, I don't want to spoil it for you, but Will Smith gets in a fighter jet and saves Earth from aliens, and Bill President Bill Pullman makes a speech very similar to the quote that I just read. Go oh, check wow. it out; it's entertaining. <laughs> wow, I can't wait. <laughs> Marcella, I know you've got a busy day and lots to be getting on with, but it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Yeah, of course. It was great meeting you, Marshall, and thanks for having me on, Karen. Bye. Bye. So it's just us, Marshall. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? Much, much better. Thank you. Hurrah. Hurrah. I'm glad to hear that. I'm relieved to hear that indeed. So it's been a whole thing, but, uh, but how, how are you feeling? How the, how have the past couple of months been for you in just observing the American political climate? Oh my God. I mean, it's, um, uh, just total relief. 
Um, the fact that I don't wake up every morning worried that some crazy man has done something insane um, who happens to be president of the United States. Um, the fact that my Twitter feed is, is considerably less polluted with utter drivel and nonsense than it was. The fact that the political discourse has returned to a page two story rather than page one banner headlines every day. Uh, you know, I read a few years ago, um, this was, I think, during the 2016 election, that um, we were getting to the point that there was too much politics in our life. You know, that we need, we need times to get away from politics, uh, you know, through whatever means we choose. And the problem with Trump was that Trump ensured that politics interfered with every aspect of our life in ways that were not just tiresome, but really destructive. And so, you know, the return to normalcy around politics, and I, even in the midst of a global pandemic and a national crisis, there's a normalcy to it that is um, comforting, uh, really comforting, and just a, a tremendous relief for me. I don't know. How's it been for you? Yeah, same. I am. Um, it's very funny that you should say that because if, that's exactly what's been happening to me is that I have found myself able to not pay close attention to politics, even as somebody who loves politics and is fascinated by it and, you know, does a lot of work and thinking about it and cares about policy and is really excited about the Biden administration's work. Little things like I love the fact that quite often the major announcements are made by the subject matter experts within their departments rather than by the White House or the White House spokesperson. Yep. That's a, that sounds like a really minor thing, but it just means that when the press asks questions, they're asking questions that are directed at the policy rather than questions that are direct at the, directed at the political argument, uh, because that's what, the, that's what answers are gonna get. So I, I realized that I'm glad that Biden isn't doing tons of press conferences. Um, you know, he's doing, you know, he just, he's, he's doing one, I think today, but we don't need to hear from the president that often. <laughs> he has a job so, to do. He has a lot of people working with him. You need to yeah. be able to address tough questions at him and there has to be accountability, but we just need to be able to dial down the amount of bandwidth that the, that the president gets, in my opinion. I couldn't agree more. And, and actually just to build on that, there's something really important about this as well. One of the things that Trump made a conscious effort to do was to gut the, the functions of the political appointees in all the departments, right? He wanted the, you know, there had been centralization of policymaking in the White House since Clinton, and it had gotten progressively more and more and more and more and more uh, up through the Obama administration. But Trump really raised that to a whole other level. There was no policy being made outside of a small team of 30 or 40 people working in the White House. That doesn't make for very effective government. And actually saying, listen, we're going to, we, we have all these departments, they're there for a reason, they're going to make policy, they're thinking about things, they're going to bring us views, and where necessary, we'll make decisions about them. The fact that Biden has returned to that model means that we will have both better outcomes and better decision making. And the White House can stay focused on the bigger picture, uh, set strategy, set direction, and drive huge issues like a national crisis of a global pandemic. And I think that's one of the reasons why Biden has been so much more effective in dealing with the pandemic than Trump ever was. 
you know, he Biden's not trying to po- make policy on on 80 or 100 issues. He's trying to make policy on four or five issues and make decisions on a on a certainly a larger number that are coming up to him through the cabinet departments. That's it. That's the way uh, American government's supposed to work. Yeah, I would I would just sort of tweak what you said to I'm not even sure Trump was making policy in all the areas that you talk about. I think the problem was what Trump was doing was making political statements through the policy process. The policy process was almost abandoned entirely. And if you look at things like, you know, the immigration ban, which took place, you know, pretty much the day after Trump took office, there was no policy process behind there. There was a political intent stated as a policy that was deployed. Um, and with no thought behind it, which is, you know, it was a disaster. Planes were stopped in, you know, turning, have, people were, became ineligible to arrive in the country in midair while their flights were on. But that was a classic example of how Trump operated. Um, there was no concern for the impact of the policy on the people it affected. It was what signal can I send with this? Biden is not that interested in the political signals he sends. He's, he's actually familiar with the workings of government and actually trying to deliver the government effectively, which seems like literally the least you can expect of a president, but it's really nice. Yeah, and I I agree with all that. I, I I do, and I think if you look at Biden from a policymaking point of view, I also sort of like the fact that he's just a little bit past caring. In other words, you know, if he runs for election, if he wins, fine. If he doesn't, I'm not sure he's all that fussed. You know, he he came in to do a job, which was to get Trump out of office and return some normalcy. And whether he does another four years or not is a is a topic for another podcast in another year. But you know if he does or doesn't, doesn't really matter. He's behaving like he's going to have a term. If he gets another term, that's a bonus. But he's going to, he's, he's, you know, of course he's taking electoral consequences into account, but he's not acting as a slave to the electorate. And he can't because he's in the middle of a national crisis. And this is what Trump never understood. Trump never moved on from politics into governing. He never understood what governing looks like. Uh, he never understood the difference between how one behaves governing versus behaves when campaigning. I mean, I appreciate that a lot of people won't care about this, but in all the litany of stuff that Trump did, the things that galled me the most, that made me the most angry, that crossed in my mind some of the most important lines, other than trying to putz around with the outcome of the election, were campaigning in the White House Rose Garden. You know, a place where treaties are signed and legislation is is approved and to to be campaigning there is just so far beyond the line of acceptable behavior um, that we we can't allow it. Biden respects those things in a way that Trump never did. And therefore, you know, we we aren't going to be worrying about those sorts of stories every day. And I, I just really like that. I want to talk to you about your your former friends and and colleagues um, on the Republican half of the aisle, um, because my lens on Biden as an operator is that his modus operandi is he's a collaborator. He likes bringing people together. He's very into the wheeling and dealing of the Senate. It's one of the reasons he was such an effective senator for so long. And I feel like your people are missing a huge, I'm sorry to call them your people. I feel like the Republicans are missing a huge opportunity in that whilst Biden is not ever going to pause for a second to um, to achieve bipartisanship because the signals have been strong that um, that's not possible, it, it feels like they're not making any significant attempt to really um, 
engage with Biden's policy process. But tell me if I'm wrong about that. Am I missing no, I something? No, I don't think you are. I, I think I think there's a bunch of issues here and we probably don't have time to cover them all. But I, I, I think there's there is a bigger problem, which is that in the old days, um, legislators, senators, members of Congress, whoever, got credit from their constituencies for doing things. Now they don't. They just don't. You know, if you turn up and say, I passed a huge health care reform bill or I helped pass a big education reform bill. You know, I remember writing mail for Republicans to say I worked with I worked across party lines to make sure that we improved education in wherever we were campaigning. You know, and, and now, actually, you're much more likely to get a primary challenge and lose your seat as a mm. result of doing those things. And I think that's that's a big I think that's a big systemic issue that, uh, you know, only time and energy will change. I think the behavior of members of the Senate in particular is also a bit disappointing for me. You know, I think I think it's funny that there's always this generational changes and there's a big, big generational change happening now. I saw I think it was the New York Times reported uh, most recent set of retirement announcements. After this next year, there will be no no Republican senators left who served in in the George W. Bush administration. Now, in Senate terms, that's not actually that long, number yeah. one. And number two, it means that a lot of the old institutional memory of the Senate is gone. You know, people who remember the days when there was a majority leader, Bob Dole, and before that, um, uh, Senator Michael, who would work together uh, effectively to make the, the chamber work because they thought it was their responsibility to. Um, the, the loss of that institutional memory and an institutional memory that is now solely about partisan bickering uh, I think is 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 really destructive and unfortunate. Um, but you know, you can't change the passage of time. Um, so you know, as long as as long as voters in the states keep electing, you know, extremists, and look, there's some extremists on the left. Um, extremists may be the wrong word, but but you know, people with quite polarized views, you know, you're gonna get more and more deteriorating behavior. Um, and then it becomes a partisan tit for tat. And that's a it's a really hard to break that cycle. So let's follow up to the obvious question then. The incentives are all working the wrong way. Um, the structure is not set up for the kind of bipartisan comedy and collaboration that you and I both agree would be good for the country. What do we need to change in the system to make it work better? I don't know. I, I think I would start with... Um, with party nominating processes, um, the uh, I, the challenge is that everybody's solution to nominating process is to go bigger with the electorate. And actually, I'm not sure that helps anymore. I might even I might start thinking about going smaller again. Um, you know, ha having a smaller group of group of trusted um, you know party leaders get together and say, okay, we're going to pick somebody who can actually win an election. Um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I know this is a slightly ridiculous thing to say, but um, for a hundred and plus years, the Senate, members of the Senate were selected by state legislatures and the system was designed that senators would really be at arm's length from voters. I think actually getting senators more at arm's length from voters makes a lot of sense. So the other way to address that would be um, longer terms. I'm not sure that's a good idea either. Um, but I think at the moment, what you want is you want senators who aren't feeling daily electoral pressure. 
you want that you want that body to be more reflective. It's meant to be more reflective by design. We've taken too much out of that, taken too much of that out of the body at the moment, uh, and we need to put that back. On the Republican side of the aisle, the intention to block legislation, to block Democratic-sponsored legislation, come what may, it, it, almost any Democratic legislation um, will be opposed by all Republicans with great consistency. Um, it means that Republicans wind up on the other side of very popular pieces of legislation and very popular ideas um, in a unified way. The signaling that that sends is that literally there is no, they feel no obligation to reflect the views of the public, even the views of the public in their own states. That doesn't feel like a functioning system to me. And yet it is completely within, like it is an accurate reading of their own incentives because the more they can make democratic presidents and democratic administrations fail, the more they will make a very good argument that um, they should be elected because these people over there are failing. Um, so there's a real for profound disconnect between um, what what is even promised to voters and the inability to deliver it. And it's always Democrats, Democrats are, Democrats who are elected on a promise of being able to do certain things, minimum wage, for example, which is an increase in the minimum wage with whether you like it or not is a very popular policy. Democrats run on promising it. Um, they currently have been struck down in their attempts to deliver a $15 minimum wage um, from a parliamentary procedure. Now try to try explaining that to a, a welder in well, Ohio. <laughs> hang on, this, this isn't a trivial par parliamentary procedure. The parliamentary procedure that we're talking about here is a carve out in the Senate rules to allow um, debate of essential budget and spending items. Yeah. And it's been carved out over the years for a quite specific reason. To yeah. Then and try, but why, but, but why is it, why is it necessary? Well, that, I mean, I don't, it's, it's, it's necessary because there are times when you need, when you need to uh, cut through the time and debate and, and move on with, with decisions about budgeting and spending. No, no, and, no, no. And the, Come raising, on, hang on. Raising the minimum wage isn't about budgeting and spending. So, so you can't argue, it's really difficult to argue for me that voting the minimum wage through under the, un, under the, um, uh, under the budget rules is, is a legitimate thing to do. I don't, oh, no, 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 don't misunderstand me. I don't disagree with you. I believe the parliamentarian was correct in her ruling that the raising the minimum wage was not primarily a budget issue. My point is that the only reason it is, it was, it was irrelevant whether or not the minimum wage is a budget reconciliation issue is because the only legislation that can be passed right now um, under the current senatorial system is budget reconciliation because you can do that by simple majority vote. It was all, it's all an attempt to get around the filibuster. Um, whereas I think we should just go out and we should pass legislation by majority vote. But I know you've defended the filibuster in this space before. So yeah, I wanna I, I give think, you a chance to do so again. I think the filibuster is an essential part of what defines the character of the Senate. Um, and you could come up with different <laughs> ways to define the character of the Senate. And I think if you wanted to do some of that, you probably could. But the, but the reality is that, the, that you do want individual senators to have um, uh, areas where they are specialists. You want individual senators to have uh, areas of policy and knowledge where they can make an impact. I mean, uh, Senator Fulbright was never in the administration and was arguably one of the most important Americans involved in foreign policy in the 20th century. 
And that was because this, the way that the Senate was set up and structured enabled him to be influential. Um, I, I think having those outlets are important. And more importantly, I think, um, everything that happens to a majority now will happen to them as a minority in the future. The Senate has swapped back and forth a number of times in my lifetime. Um, I can remember party leaders on both sides in, in all the decades I've been alive. So that goes back to the 70s. Um, so the idea that we're going to change the rules now because it suits us only becomes problematic for you inevitably when you're in the, in the minority. And in the meantime, it destroys the fabric of the institution. I think the institution is more important than any piece of legislation. And so, you know, uh, so I'm, I think we have to stand behind the institution, defend the character of the institution, even at the expense of good policy. Okay, and that's so why I think keeping the filibuster is the right thing to do. So I profoundly and utterly disagree with you that the thing that is currently called the filibuster, which is a very novel invention, it is new, it is not the filibuster as it has been known historically, it is not the filibuster as it existed when Fulbright was in the Senate. I fundamentally disagree with you that this completely novel innovation that basically came about over the past couple of decades is fundamental to the character of the Senate. It used to be the case that the way the filibuster operated was that if a individual senator were determined to prevent the, um, the movement forward of a particular piece of legislation, then with a great deal of effort, he, could, he or she could do so. The current situation is that a minority of the Senate can block every piece of legislation with no effort whatsoever. All they have to do is say that they would intend to filibuster and that's what happens. That's not conducive to debate. Look at the outcomes you're getting. The Senate is non-functioning as a, as a body right now. I think I to save the Senate, we have to fix, at least reform the filibuster, if not scrap it. So I agree that the, that the body's dysfunctional. I actually think there are other things that would be easier to address. That would that would get you further down the road. So I'll give you one example. Um, this is this is procedural uh, arcania for, for your listeners. So I apologize. But, I love a bit of arcania. <laughs> so when you when you put a bill on the floor of the Senate, the rules generally specify that there will be a certain number of amendments allowed, and they're first degree amendments and second degree amendments. Um, and there, the, the rules specify how many amendments can be offered against, against a given bill, and each amendment gets its own time for debate and consideration. And over the years, historically, uh, majority and minority leaders have always collaborated to allow some amendments from both parties to be considered. And about, uh, it's, it going, it's going back to the Bush administration, George W. Bush administration now, but um, uh, Senator McConnell and then Senator Reid really mastered it. But between the two of them, they mastered this process of what they call filling the amendment tree, which makes it basically impossible for senators to offer amendments. If you could have, if you could go back to the days where senators could offer amendments, you could have some full debate on those, and the vote on, vote on them. Amendments are not subject to filibuster in the same way. In fact, they're generally not subject to filibuster at all. Um, you could have some debate on those things. You could have proper consideration of those amendments, vote up, vote down, carry on. It would make it much easier to give, give people who wanna have input on legislation the opportunity to do that. Now, I take your point. I'm not naive about this. Uh, you know, There is a block of Republican senators who just wanna oppose any piece of legislation that Democrats are for. Um, I think that's a question of, of, of helping of beginning to break up that that partisan block and getting back to a sense of um, 
responsibility for state interest and, and personal interest as opposed to party interests. But in the meantime, the things like dealing with the amendment tree question would go a long way towards restoring some of that collaboration and comedy in the Senate, which is at the moment um, uh, really lacking. But uh, you know, to, to your broader point, okay, so on the, on, you, you wanna get rid of the filibuster, great. Well, all that means is that, that on any piece of legislation, the majority leader can, can do exactly as it works in the House. You get a friendly rules committee to approve a rule for debate. You say debate's gonna be three hours. You jam the piece of legislation through that nobody's read. And that's bad legislation, bad legislating. At the moment, it's the way that the way the House works and that just produces one crappy bill after another. The, the, the Senate steps in, they can make technical changes, they take more time with things. That time can only be good. Um, there are very few pieces of legislation that need to be passed in 24 hours. Um, so I think having some time, having some, uh, forcing some time for proper debate, that's what we want the Senate to do. And I think we should, we should, um, support their their ability to to have rules to do that. I guess I guess what I find frustrating in this conversation is the disconnect between what you're describing and what actually happens, as far as I can see. Because yeah. I don't see any evidence that the existence of the filibuster has caused debate in the Senate to improve. Quite the opposite. I don't see any evidence that it causes um, senators to have to slow down their legislation and actually engage with the policy and the bill that's in it. It just, from my, from what I can see, it just means that legislation doesn't get brought to the floor at all and is no, never discussed, does, never it debated. Does, it does force greater consensus, which is the you know, okay, you can say that sixty votes is too many. Um, and that's a, a reasonable debate to have. But by forcing greater consensus, it also forces greater compromise. And what ideologues don't like, ideologues don't like the idea that legislation is going to be compromised. That no, you know, when we were talking about uh, the the COVID uh, relief bill earlier, you know, I made the point that um, you know it's not a perfect piece of legislation. It isn't. No piece of legislation is because compromise is required every step of the way. And ideologues really dislike that. Yeah. My view is uh, not really being an ideologue. I think every piece of legislation could be should be compromised, um, and I, I use that word advisedly. You know, we don't want extreme pieces of pieces of law passed, and and those extreme pieces of law run both ways. I mean, I know McConnell got a lot of shtick for this, the the uh, speech he gave two weeks ago, where he said, "Look, if you do away with the filibuster, the next time we're in the majority, here's what you're getting." He's not wrong, and actually say what you will about McConnell, McConnell doesn't want to be putting through loads and loads of extreme legislation, extreme left or extreme right. And the Senate's role is to take the extreme, uh, take the extreme out of the legislative process. Now, the problem is at the moment that the Senate is stopping the legislative process, yes. and that's a different <laughs> issue. But you can't, set, you can't go straight from, we want the Senate to slow the legislative process and, and bring in some compromise and force people to come together and build a bit more consensus. You can't go from that to operating just like the house where you put it put up and pass anything you want in a matter of minutes and hours. That's not good legislation legislative process either. Okay. You thought the American Rescue Plan was a pretty good piece of legislation. Do you agree that I I think you even said just now there were compromises in that. It, none of it was what everybody wanted and not everything that that somebody wanted wasn't in there but it was a good piece of legislation that was negotiated um, and it was passed under budget reconciliation 
through a 50 through a 55th a majority a straight majority vote it actually was possible to get a good piece of legislation debated discussed and through the senate floor in a majority vote in a both in a manner that you agree with and an outcome that you approve of so how is that not better well, I, I than don't the, other, really the other alternative i don't really accept the premise i i okay. would i would i would argue that that piece of legislation is the product of two and a half years of work not two and a half yeah. years sorry a year and a half of work um, you know, that actually an awful lot of what was being debated in uh, COVID relief bills in the last administration came into this bill. There were some additional policy making done mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and that, that then put through. And I think the other, the other reason that there was some compromise in this situation is you've got a 50-50 Senate. Um, uh, and, and ultimately, some negotiation was required on that basis. But the minute you don't have a 50-50 Senate, you and I both know that goes straight out the window. That, that, that the legislative agenda will just be Pelosi's greatest hits. It'll go straight through a Democratic majority with very little, um, uh, very little committee review. And by the way, that's another thing st structurally and systemically that you could fix very easily that would make a huge difference. Over the years, Republican majorities particularly, but both parties have really eroded the authority of uh, committee chairs to look at scrutinize and write legislation. You could give them a lot more authority back, and that would help the legislative process immensely. Anyway, bottom line is on this particular bill, great. They got it once. They got it right once. Hurrah. They're not getting it right very often. Uh, and I think relying on a process that, that essentially removes the um, imperative for compromise is, for me, in the long term, quite dangerous. Yeah, I think, I think you know, you and I are obviously never going to agree on this, but that's fine. We're still friends. <laughs> Yeah. I think I see it as you talked about some different reforms other than changing the filibuster that you think would um, would fix the Senate. I'm coming from it the other way, whereas I think we can get what you want. We can get the kind of um, encouragement of constructive debate and good bipartisan policymaking without the filibuster. I don't see that the filibuster has done anything to improve the things, but that you're talking about, but we will leave that conversation to argue about the next time we can meet face to face over a glass of wine. <laughs> Marshall, if you were granted a free pass, the, the deity of politics came down and handed you a golden ticket to walk up to Joe Biden, hand the ticket to him and say, I want you to pursue this. This is your next legislative priority or policy priority. What would you want him to do? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, first legislative priority you could do anything you wanted actually do you know there are two sorry um if you're giving me a golden ticket you know that requires no no scrutiny you can you can you can um circumvent all the the kind of problems of american politics there are two issues uh that i think on a golden ticket you'd have to tackle the first is immigration because you're never going to get an immigration legislation through congress and it's so important um, and my views on immigration are quite controversial. I pretty much open the borders. Um, I'm, and I'm, I'm very happy to, I've said that many times. I've said that to my conservative friends, it drives them crazy. I, I think- <laughs> Yeah, I you must be popular. Yeah, I think broadly people should be allowed to move around as they want. Um, you know, with a passport, we should check to make sure they're not criminals and all those sort of things. But, but um, you know, within, within reasonable bounds of, um, of policymaking broadly, I think people should be allowed to move around as you want. And the fact that we have this, this kind of semi-permanent hidden class of people living in the US illegally just, just really does break my heart. 
because um, you know we we all have have friends who have either are or have been in uh, in the country illegally, um, and and you you look at these folks and go, this is this is an, this is a tragedy. You know, you want to be here. Uh, in almost every case, you're con you're contributing to the betterment of the country. Uh, you know, kids go into the armed forces, kids go to school, they become the next generation of Americans. That's the way America has always been. Yeah. Uh, and and to continue to sit on one side and worry that uh, immigration is going to change the character of the country or threaten the security, that's all nonsense. And we know it's nonsense because we've been a country of immigrants since the first day. So that's, that's one. And if you'll forgive me for taking a second one, the second one is we have to fix social security and that is impossible to do through the policymaking process. So that's the other one. I think I would get a group of experts together, not members of Congress. Um, and I would say, okay, what do we have to do here uh, to sort this out for the next you know, 100 years? What do we have to, to get done? It's probably a move towards more of a... Um, uh, more of a public pension system. I don't really care. At the end of the day, somebody will tell us what the answer is and we need to put it through. By the way, it will also involve raising the retirement age and any number of other things that Democrats hate. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it is what it is. We've got to fix it. And the only way to fix it is going to be a divine free pass like you've described. Okay. Thank you. You've, you you've, I've, given, I've given you a golden ticket and you've taken two. Greedy, greedy. But one of them has to come first. So which one are you putting first? I do immigration first. Immigration I think immigration is a more pressing issue at the moment. Yeah, immigration is a top priority for me too. So I think you can probably uh, reach across the aisle for that one. In fact, your Republican friends want nothing to do with you on that one. <laughs> no, they, but they never have. I mean, the, the, my position on immigration is um, actually very old-fashioned libertarian before yeah. Ron Paul was around. It's the a freedom of movement issue. Men. Yeah, it really is. It's a it's it's a it's an individual human rights issue. I mm -hmm. should be able to go where I want to go, unless there is some good legal impediment to my doing that. I ought to be able to go where I want to go. I mean, that's the way the world works and has for an awful long time. <laughs> Marshall, it's an absolute delight to talk to you. I'm happy to have our first conversation during the Biden administration, and I hope there will be many more of them. Well, can I just say, Karen, I, I, you've had me on a few times over the last couple of years as we've been as we've lived through the the 2020 elections and COVID and post-election madness. Uh, and I just want to say a massive thank you for having me. And more importantly, thank you for doing this. Uh, I think you, you've built a really, a really cool, uh, really interesting um, platform to talk about politics in an interesting, uh, in an interesting and, and really, I think, quite useful conversational way. Uh, and, and I just want to say thank you for that. It's been great. Well, thank you very much. I think it's it's been good for me too. I think one of the things that I've been struggling with recently is that over the last few years is that the trend towards polarization and increasing anger and um, feeling bad all the time that's operative in the country and in the world, I could also feel it in me. And yeah. I just had this need of, I, I need to talk to smart people about interesting things in ways that dial the rhetoric down. And you know, even if it's, even if I'm the only one who benefited from it, I did benefit from it a lot, this conversation and many others like it. Brilliant. Well, thanks for having me. And that's it <laughs> for the last time. That's, that's really it. That's a wrap folks. Um, that is Democratically 2020 coming to an end. It has been an honor to 
to have you spend this time with me. Um, it has meant a lot to me to have a place where I could talk um, and uh, learn and grow and change and um, just vent <laughs> over these past few years. Uh, so thank you for whatever part of the journey that you shared with me. Thank you to all of the wonderful people who were guests on the show at different times. Thank you to the very kind people out there on the internet who uh, volunteered. Uh, people volunteered to make show art for me, gave me advice, um, helped me connect with guests. It's been absolutely brilliant. Um, what a lovely, lovely experience it's been to be involved with this podcast. I thank you. Um, I thank you for your participation in our democracy. And I thank you for your, um, your the good vibes that I've been receiving from all of you uh, through, through the podcast all these years. Goodbye and good luck. Good luck.